Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. Uh, we were gone last week to Orlando. I'll tell you what. Um, if you ever go to Orlando on a Sunday, go to the Baymont Inn to the Main Gate congregation. Uh, that was an interesting experience. There were like, what, 50 people there, I guess, um, from everywhere across the continent. Um, and uh, we got to meet a lot of good people. And then we saw them later on in the park, and they gave us hints and tips and all that stuff. So anyways, uh, I am thoroughly exhausted, which means it was probably a pretty good vacation. Um, eventually, we'll take a nap and get caught up. But turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. Well, really, 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's start in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. When we, when we find 2 Kings 6, uh, we have an interesting thing. Way back at the giving of the law in Exodus chapter 20, the rest of the book of Exodus, and then the book of Leviticus, and really into some of the book of Numbers, you have the law that is given. The law of Moses. Isn't it interesting that God had chosen and has chosen for the last well, about 3,500 years or so to communicate his law through, the, through mankind. It used to be, before Moses came along, used to be that God just told the head of the household what he was supposed to do. We see that in the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis, throughout the book of Genesis, uh, and then the beginning chapters of the book of Exodus, that, that the, the household leaders, the men that are leading their households, just know what they're supposed to do. In Genesis chapter 3, they know that they're supposed to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God has told them that. In Genesis 4 and 5 and so forth, uh, Cain and Abel even know that they're supposed to offer sacrifices. And it's implied that they even know what they're supposed to offer when Cain brings the wrong kind and God says, I told you not to bring this. I told you to bring something else. What your brother Abel brought, that's why he was accepted and you were not. But then Moses comes along and God chooses to give the law of God through a man, through Moses. And so he does that. He gives the Ten Commandments. You might remember those. He gives the, the laws about the tabernacle and how it's supposed to be built and how big it is and how, what it's supposed to be built of. And even going into the book of Numbers, he tells how they're supposed to travel, who's supposed to carry what. If you're uh, the sons of Kohath, you pretty much... Got the short end of the stick because your whole job is just to carry stuff. Um, reminds me of yesterday during the work day, we were talking about, I don't even remember who it is, so don't think I'm calling somebody out, but somebody mentioned somebody that they know who's, who's just about good enough just to carry stuff, and that's about it. Well, that's the sons of Kohath. Anyways, so God gives the law, and then the book of Deuteronomy the word means second law, Deuteronomy means second law, but it's really a second telling of the law. In Deuteronomy 28, God tells them this, if you don't follow my commands, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be sieged, besieged. You're going to have no food, no water, no shelter, really. You're going to start turning on one another. And eventually, you're going to start um, committing cannibalism. Because you're in this siege situation and you have no food. He even goes as far to say that when this happens, when the, when the epitome of God's punishment to the Israelite people happens because of their forgetfulness and their 
rebellion against the law that God had given, that they're going to go as far as to cannibalize young people. In 2 Kings 6, that's exactly what happens. It's a story that you've probably heard about if you've studied the book of First uh, and Second Kings before. The, well, the Sumerians have come and they've besieged the city. And the king is walking on the outer wall, something that the kings would do to make sure that no one was getting in and so forth. And just to make sure that their city was safe. And he's walking on the wall and someone's screaming and he looks down and he sees this woman. He says, what's wrong? And she says, we had a contract. Me and this other woman had a contract that we were going to commit cannibalism today with hers and then tomorrow, or with mine, sorry, and then tomorrow we would, eat, we would commit cannibalism with hers. And the king says this. Let me see if I can find it real quick so I can get the exact wording. The king says this, verse number 31 of 2 Kings chapter 6. May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. The reason is because Elisha is the one who prophesied this. He's the one that said, there's coming a time when you're going to be besieged by the Sumerians because of your sin, and you're not going to have any food, you're not going to have anything. And so the king places the blame on Elisha. Isn't that, that, that's something that happens even today. This morning in Bible class, we were talking about the similarities between the, the way that old, the old way used to work and the way that the new way used to work. Not in religion, but, but just the way that people interact with one another. When you hear bad news, what's the statement that's always said with bad news? Don't shoot the messenger, right? It happens today just like it happened back then. The king thinks... Because Elijah prophesied this, it's, Elijah, it's Elisha's fault. Because Elisha said that we were going to be besieged, then everything that is happening is Elisha's fault. Well, in fact, the reason why Elisha said it was because God told him. Turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. This is from the Christian Standard Bible. It's a new translation, but this translation, we'll talk about it, actually gets uh, this phrase right. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I say, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Your translation probably says something a little different. Whatever, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it's, it's future tense. And it gives the idea that whenever an apostle said something, he had the ability to make the laws of God. That when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, well, this is my opinion, and this is not by direct statement of God, but this is my opinion, that what he was doing was making a law unto himself, that, that, that he was adding to the law of God. When in fact, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians when he says those things, and he says it again in 2 Corinthians, I believe in Romans as well. What he's saying is, I'm an apostle of God. I have a direct link with Jesus Christ that you don't have. 
I have the ability to know by inspiration what God wants for his church. I'm also one that is tasked with leading the church, growing it out of its infancy. And so when I have an opinion, you should listen to it. Does that mean that what Paul said is not the law of God? No, that's not it at all. But when they had opinions, it was because they understood the law of God more than anyone else. When they said something, this is what I think about this, it's because it's not just some interpretation that they're coming up with off the fly, like we talked about this morning in Bible class. What they're doing is they're interpreting the law of God the way God intended for it to be said in the first place. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says that whatever you bound on earth, you're not making stuff up. Whatever you say will have already been said by God. Whenever you and I say something, we go to someone and we tell them, you need to change this about your life. Or we, we show them that they need to change this about their life or something like that. Oftentimes it comes up that it's your interpretation, that it's my interpretation, and we can have differences of interpretation and just be done with it. But the fact of the matter is that there's only one truth. And Jesus told his disciples that when they wrote something, when they said something, when they preached something, when they were taking the law of God and spreading it to mankind, what they would be taking was already set in stone. Not written in tablets like Moses had when he came off the mountain. But set in stone is because God came up with it before the foundation of the world. And what Elisha is doing in 2 Kings 6 is exactly the same thing. He's not making stuff up. He's not, he's not coming up with punishments for the people of Israel just because he, he's mad at them. What he's doing is he's telling them what God already said. And the fact is that when God says something, there's little to absolutely nothing that we can do to stop it. When God sets his will, there's no way that you and I can have any bearing on what that will says or if it changes or anything else. And so Elisha comes and tells the people of Israel, there's going to be a siege, you're not going to have any food. They don't believe him. And so the king calls, to, calls for Elisha there in the beginning of, um, well, the end of chapter 6 of 2 Kings Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, hold, fast, hold the door fast against him. It is not, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came. They didn't have time to get ready. So the messenger comes. He says, the king's going to kill you. And so here's what Elisha does. He says something else. He's not making it up. He says it because God reveals it to him. He's a prophet of God. And so verse number one of chapter seven. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. All right, a seah is about seven quarts. So you've got about seven quarts 
of fine flour sold for a shekel, and about 14 quarts of barley are sold for a shekel. That's pretty good pricing. I know we don't buy in shekels anymore. We buy in dollar bills or in whatever currency of the country that you're in at that point. But suffice it to say that seven quarts of flour for a shekel is like Aldi prices. It's about as low as it can go, okay? You may not be getting the best, but it's about as cheap as you can get it. By the way, if you ever go to Orlando and you want to go buy bananas, don't. Just don't. Everything down there was $5 more expensive than it is here. We went to lunch. Y'all know how budget-friendly I am? And that's going a little soft on my, my views of budgets. We decided we were going to eat lunch in the park one day. And we were going to do one of these character dining experiences where you get to sit Mickey Mouse comes to your table and sits down with you. You know, it's so nice. And so I went online and I budgeted. And I said, okay, this lunch is going to be pretty, pretty expensive, but we, we're going to do it because I, I want to take a picture with Goofy. And I couldn't find him. And so I said, we're going to do this. And then the guy brought the bill. Disney doesn't update their websites very much on the prices. It's about double what I thought it was going to be. Anyways, a sea of fine flour is sold for a shekel. And there's a man that speaks up and he says, even if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Make windows in heaven was, was a reference back to when God sent the manna. Even if God sent manna, how are you going to save us? How's he going to save us from this? And so Elisha turns to the man and says, you're going to see it, but you're not going to eat of it. You're going to, you're going to have a chance to look at it, but you're not going to partake of the blessing that's going to come, the deliverance that's going to come because of this. And then the story pauses and it goes outside of the city. Now there were, verse 3, four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. Lepers are outside the city because they have, they have leprosy. They're not allowed inside the city. In fact, if they're going to go inside the city, they have to stand so many feet away from someone, they have to cover their mouth with their hand and scream unclean. Because no one is, no one is supposed to be near them because leprosy is pretty contagious. Now, keep in mind that in the Bible times, leprosy wasn't just what we think of leprosy and leper colonies that we still have today where at some point fingers and toes will start to disintegrate. Sometimes, if you had a spot on your skin and they didn't know what it was, they called it leprosy because they're being safer rather than sorry. So if you have eczema or psoriasis, you're living outside. If you have a rash that you don't know where it comes from, you're living outside. And so... These four men are outside the city, and they're, I mean, let's face it, they can't work. They can't, they, they can't be around people. They can't have a job. They can't sell things. And so they're basically left to whatever people throw at them while they're walking in the city. But when you're besieged, you're not going to be walking outside the walls very often, right? 
And when you start running out of food, you're not going to be throwing food over the wall for the lepers that are living outside. You're going to be keeping the food for yourself, right? Take care of yourself first, your family first. It's a principle that we, all, we should all be living by. But when you're besieged, you're not going to be thinking much about the lepers. And so the lepers look at one another and say, what are we going to do about this? We can't stay out here. We're going to die if we stay out here. If we go in there, they have no food. So all we're going to do is get all of them sick and still have no food. So what are we going to do? So if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we'll live. But if they kill us, we're going to die. We're going to die here. We may die with the Syrians. Let's, let's try our luck. Let's see what happens if we do go over there. And so the rest of the story is that they, well, we'll get there in just a second. But I want to talk about this decision to get moving first. These people are destitute in their situation. They're lost because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. It's, it's kind of the same picture as the people who, or, who are inside the city. They just don't know what they're supposed to be doing. It's kind of the same picture as the people that are outside the body of Christ today who know that they're supposed to be doing something, but they don't know what to do. Thursday, we drove to Oviedo, Florida, which is where I lived until I was 10 years old. We walked around the house that I grew up in. We drove around and we saw the chickens. I have Oviedo chicken socks on this morning. I bought socks. I went to Oviedo and my souvenir was I bought socks with chickens on them. All right, anyways. So part of that trip was we drove out to Winter Springs, which is just, just down there, cities are like, two and a half minutes apart. So we drove a mile and a half down the road and we saw an old church building that was closed up with a for sale sign out front. And I can still remember dragging an eight foot tall Goliath around the gym in that church building. Long before we were ever members of the body of Christ. And I started thinking, what happened to the people that I remember that used to go to church there? Where do they go now? Do they go anywhere? Are they still alive? Have they moved away? What happened? There are a lot of people in the world today that are going to church this morning knowing that they should be doing something. They just don't understand what they should be doing. And so they say, well, this place is next door. Let's go there. It's kind of the same situation as the people, the lepers that are outside the wall in 2 Kings chapter 6. And so they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to risk it. We're going to go to the Syrians' camp. And we're going to turn ourselves in. And hopefully, they're going to let us live. If they don't let us live, that's fine. But if they do let us live, at least we've made it out of this situation. We might be stuck in the Syrians' home for a while, but at least we've made it out alive. So they go. And they get there, and the text says that that night beforehand, verse uh, number 6, the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and sound of great army 
So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the kings of, the, of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when the, those lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold clothing and went and hid them. And they came back and entered another tent, and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Think about this for just a second. There's a person out in the world that knows that they should be doing something. They just don't know what they should be doing. And so they decide, I'm going to go to the place where it looks like I may have a chance. The Bible. And they find the answers. They find help. They find deliverance. They find care. And so they sit there and they read it. And they take it in, and they eat of it, as it were. And they're replenished and refreshed, and they learn that there's this new way that Christ has given us through the law of Christ and through the writings of the apostles so that we can become refreshed again, so that we can become delivered again. And so they do that. And and, And a person who reads the New Testament would realize that they need to be baptized for the remission of their sins. They need to start worshiping in spirit and in truth. I heard a story one time about a person who was in um, who was in Jerusalem at the church in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Church of Christ, as it were. And a person came in that was dressed like a kind of kind of like a a roaming, you know, person of the mountains over there. And they said, "Where are you from?" And he said, "I'm from Iraq." And I was walking through the city, and I saw the sign, and I came in. And what you're doing is exactly what we do. And they said, oh, great. Where are you from? Because there are some churches in Iraq. They just, you know, you, you don't talk about it too much. And if anyone finds out, you move it very quickly. They said, where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm from the mountains. They said, we, we didn't know there was a church in the mountains of Iraq. He said, yeah, it's a community of people. We're all members of the body of Christ. We believe the New Testament. We believe in Jesus Christ. We follow his law. They don't talk to anybody. So you've got a person who takes the word of God. You know, if you just take this Bible and you never hear me or Jim or anybody else stand up in a, in a pulpit on a stage and talk about it, and you just take this Bible and you just apply it, you're going to learn the truth. If you get rid of everything else and all the falsehoods and man-made stuff that we've put into our own minds about it, you just take this book and you apply it, you're going to learn the truth. And so that person does it. They find the replenishing. They find the refreshing. And then there's a bunch of people that they remember back where they came from that are lost and dying. They're starving to death because they don't have what they need. They don't have the deliverance that they need. And so they just sit on it. And they don't tell anybody. That's exactly what these men are doing in 2 Kings chapter 7. Verse number 9, Then they said to one another, We're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there's no one there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents that they were, as they were. The gatekeepers go and they tell the king. And the king says, Well, they're tricking us. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some of the last horses that we have left. Take those horses. Go over to the camp of the Syrians. See if this is true. 
They go and they do that. They come back and they say, yes, everything's true. And so the people of Israel run to the camp of the Syrians and they eat and they're taken care of and they have so much food now that a sea of fine flour is sold for a shekel. Exactly what Elisha said. Exactly what Elisha said happens. And the man who said, what if God sent manna, he couldn't save us from this. Looks and sees it happening, but he's standing in the wrong spot. He's standing in the middle of the gate. And when people are rushing through a gate, you need to get out of the way. He's trampled and killed. And so exactly what Elisha said comes true. He saw it, but he didn't have a chance to partake in it because he was killed by the mobs running through the gate. All right, here's, here's the thing. I know this is pretty cut and dry, but here's, here's the fact of the matter. When you look at this story, it teaches us two things. Number one, that deliverance requires something of me. These men find, the, find what they need and they start hiding it. But there are other people that are starving to death that need it. And they're not going to give it to them. And one, all of a sudden, they realize what we're doing is not right. We need to go and we need to tell people about this. Our deliverance requires something of us. We have an obligation. Those of us who are members of the body of Christ, you have an obligation to tell someone about it. I can't make this clear enough. If you have what everyone needs and you, you sit there and you hide it and you don't tell anyone about it, and you take as much as you can, as fast as you can, but you never end up spreading it. You never end up helping someone else. And you take all of the extra and you just hide it away. You're not helping yourself and you're not helping anyone else. Deliverance requires something of the person who's been delivered, especially if it's open for other people. Number two is that we can never think that we are outside of the power of God's love and the, the chance of deliverance. Back when they're in the, in the siege, what's the purpose? Why are they put there? It's because God is giving them a second chance. God knows that that night he's going to, well, one night in the future, because we don't know how long this siege lasted, but... One night in the future, God knows that he's going to send this sound of an army that's moving. And the Syrians are going to run away. And what God is doing in putting them through this siege, allowing this siege to happen to them, is giving them a second chance. Letting them realize just how bad it's gotten. Just how bad off they are. Just how much they need him. Even if God were going to send manna from heaven, he can't take us out of this. The fact is, he can. And he will. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, says this. 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us 
and sent his son to be, be, to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means payment for. He sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. How do we know that God loves us? Well, Jesus died on the cross. Raise your hand if you were there the day that Jesus died on the cross. You weren't, right? The only way that we know that God loves us is this book that says that Jesus died on the cross. Well, what, if, what about if this book isn't trustworthy? Well, it is. I, I've said for years now, if anyone can show me a contradiction in this book, I will give you my next month's pay, I will quit, and I will go work at Burger King for all it takes. I'm dead serious. I'll write you a check right now. Show me a contradiction in it. You can't do it. They're not there. You see, the power of God is so strong that he can take a book written 2,000 years ago and keep it to where we didn't mess it up. We can't do anything without messing it up. The other day, Thursday, we're driving around Oviedo, and Becca said, I've never seen an orange tree. And I said, you've, wait a second, you've never seen an orange tree? She said, no. And I said, well, we're in Oviedo, Florida. There's orange groves all over the place. I'll take you to see an orange tree. And I drove to where the orange grove was. You know what's there now? Apartment complexes. And I looked at her and I said, now what are we going to do? She said, well, I guess I won't see an orange tree. I said, no, no, no. If there's an orange tree in this town, I know where it is. Give me a second. So we drove to the other side of the, to the city. The city. It was, it's still, even after all these years, it's still pretty small. And I'm surprised that when I left at 10 years old, I still remembered how to get everywhere in the city. Anyways, we drove over to another place. And there was an orange grove of about 50 trees. That's it. We can't even keep an orange farm alive. Because next door to the little bitty grove of 50 trees was a dead grove of about 1,000 trees. We can't even keep trees alive. But we can keep a book without any contradictions for 2,000 years? No. That's the power of God's love. Because if it's not for our knowledge of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't have the deliverance. And this man standing at the gate said, God can't save us from this. God's love can save us from anything we need. But the fact of the matter is, we have to find out about it. And those of us that have it have to tell someone about it. If we don't, we're just as guilty as they are, more guilty than they are. Because they don't know what they're doing, and we do, and we have to say something about it. What's going on in 2 Kings 6 and 7 is that God is allowing them to see just how bad it has gotten. In Luke chapter 16, he does the same thing to a young man who goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance, and his father gives him his inheritance. Now his father is essentially legally dead. Uh, we forget that part a lot. We think that the father just gave the guy a check. No. He signed his death his, his 
bill of death, his death certificate. You don't just give the, you don't just give away your inheritance at that time by transferring money on your Wells Fargo app. You have to be dead to get the inheritance. And so he signed his, his death certificate and said, I am everything but physically dead now. I am legally dead. No one is in, uh, my, my sons are in charge of everything. And so he gives his son the inheritance. The guy runs off. He goes into a far country. He wasted on what the text says, riotous living, which is probably gambling and drinking and, and everything that we think of as riotous living today. And he realizes that he spent all his money. And so he, got, he has to get a job. And so this young Jewish boy, who's probably around the age of 20 or so, decides, I need a job, I need some food, I need some shelter, I need, I need things that, you know, the basic tenets of life. And so he goes and he finds a job at a farm, which sounds entirely great. The problem is, it's a pig farm. The young Jewish boy is working in a pig farm. And he realizes just how bad he's gotten. And he comes to himself, the text says. Comes to his right mind. Goes back home, tells his father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just let me be one of the servants. His father says, no. I let you go, basically, because I needed you to realize just what you were leaving. Now that you're back, here's a ring. Here's legal authority over my, what once was my property. Now, that is your brother's property. Here's legal authority over it. Here's some shoes. Because if you're rich, you have shoes in that time period. You don't just go to Walmart and buy cheap shoes. Here's a, here's a robe so that you look like one of us. That father let the son go do that because he knew that one day he's probably going to come to himself and he needs to know what he's leaving. God allowed the siege to happen in 2 Kings 6 and 7 because God knew that one day they're going to come to themselves and I need them to see what they're leaving behind. That didn't work for very long because the Israelites still had some growing up to do when it came to following the law of God. But the, the things that we can take from this story are much more than just God allows us to see what we're leaving behind. It's that when we have something, it's our responsibility, our obligation to tell someone. It's also our responsibility and our obligation to look in the right places when we're searching for something. These guys knew we can go into the city and try to find food there, but they really don't have what we need. We need to go where we know they have what we need, the Syrians. So they took a risk, and they did it. And they found the deliverance that they needed. Sometimes following God takes a risk that other people are not willing to take. That's why in Matthew chapter 7, it says that there are few that are going to find the, the narrow way. And that's why in Matthew chapter 7 it says that there are going to be people who look at God on the judgment day and say, didn't we do all these great things in your name? Didn't we prophesy and preach and, and take care of the, the, the widows? And didn't we take care of people who were hungry and thirsty in your name? We told people about you when you did it. Yeah, but you didn't take the risk. You did just as much as the risk didn't involve. You didn't take the risk of, of, of knowing me. And so I can't allow you into my home. 
Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. It takes risk. But we've got to be willing to take that risk and actually follow through with it. And that means we have to live lives that are different. We have to live lives that people think are weird and strange. We have to do things that are weird and strange to the people on the outside. That means that we have to say things that are weird and strange to people on the outside and tell them. And tell them what they need for deliverance. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a psalm of encouragement for you. If you're willing to be baptized for the mission of your sins, and you're willing to take the chance and, and take the risk of becoming a Christian, knowing that it's not going to be all rainbows and sunshine. I don't care what anybody on TV says about Christianity. It is not a full bank account and a full belly and good clothes and nice cars and everything else. Christianity is not physical. It's not, it's not about what you have. It's about what you've given. And so if you want to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you and let us know while we do that.